You know, Max Lakeda made the observation that it's impossible to be satisfied with existence once you've tasted purpose. You won't uh, have a desire to merely exist if you've ever tasted purpose. And when we talk about tasting purpose, we're talking about tasting purpose from God's economy. We're talking about walking with God, worshiping God, uh, witnessing uh, the miraculous things that God does. We're talking about uh, working alongside of God when God gives us opportunity and assignment. And so God has created us to experience purpose and true purpose and fulfillment as we've established will only come uh, from a surrendered relationship to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. You're not going to find it anywhere else. Now, Jesus had been crucified, and he's been raised from the dead, and he's revealed himself to quite a few different people uh, over a few-day period of time, and he's about to ascend to establish himself to be with the Father once and for all in heaven. But before he kind of totally checks out of planet Earth, the final instruction that he gives to the church, to his disciples, is found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. It's in your bulletin. You can open up and kind of jog with me there. But Jesus gives the church, if you will, and the disciples and his followers a final instruction. And here's what he said. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even until the ends of the age. Now, final instruction, final words, final statements that he's given to his disciples. We'll break down disciple in more detail here in a second, but here's what I want you to hear. These guys, when they started hanging out with Jesus, Peter, James, John, uh, many of the others, when they started hanging out with Jesus, they were probably 16, 17, 18 years old. They're probably 20, 21 years old now. And so the one that they've been hanging with and the one that they've been following for these last three years of their earthly journey now has been crucified and now he has been raised from the dead and now he shows up and Thomas is filling his hands going, wow, it's really you. And he's looking at them, giving them a final word, if you will, an instruction uh, that they're to carry out. Now, here's what you got to realize. The disciples realized the adversity that they were about to face. Nero and other emperors had been in charge, if you will, of, of ruling and governing, and emperor worship was huge in the Roman Empire of that day. Even when you start to look in Jerusalem and those other towns around there, there was a lot of emperor worship. Now, they absolutely despised Jesus. They hated him, even to the point that they would lie about who he was so that they could ultimately kill him and crucify him and murder him. Thus, those that were following Jesus were under great scrutiny. And the Pharisees and even the Sadducees and even some of the religious community of the Sanhedrin and others of that day, they didn't like them. The emperor worship did not like them. And they were absolutely wanting to kill these guys and dismiss this entire Jesus movement that was happening. So the, the, the assignment that he's giving them is a very difficult assignment. I want you to go into all the world. 
That's the reason when you read in the book of James chapter 1 that the disciples were being scattered because of persecution, and many of them were becoming martyrs because of their faith in Christ. They were being killed and absolutely annihilated because of their faith in Jesus. Now, he gives them what we call the Great Commission. The Great Commission. That's what this text is called. Now, there's another passage where we read about the great commandment where he says, love God and love others and uh, all this. But this is called the Great Commission. Here's the, here, here's the fallacy and the problem in churches today. The Great Commission in most churches has become the great omission. What Jesus told us to do and instructed us to do has been omitted or avoided or not taken to heart over these last 2,000 years. And so we live in a culture here where God is calling us to be disciples and disciple makers at the cross Loganville. We're not an entertainment culture. We're not just a let's get together and say we did church culture. We take to heart that we are disciples and disciple makers here at this church. And so when you think that the assignment of making disciples in 2017, it's difficult in Loganville, Walton County, Gwinnett County, wherever you may be. Let me tell you something. The assignment that these young guys had some 2,000 years ago was a very, very difficult assignment. And the assignment hasn't changed, and we'll get to that in a minute. So Jesus makes this observation. And there's two major things I really want to hit as I start to unpackage uh, this text to you today. There's two major things I want to unpackage. I want to unpackage Jesus' authority and our assignment. Everything in this text kind of hangs on those two thoughts. Now, the word all in this text kind of dominates these three verses. Jesus makes the statement, all authority has been given to me, going to all the nations and teaching them all that I've commanded. All, all, all. All authority belongs to Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Go to all the nations. Again, Acts 1-8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the remotest parts of the earth. That's what he says in Acts 1-8, that we're to be witnesses, which even the word there is the word martyr, which means we're going to be willing to die for the cause of the gospel. He says, uh, go to all the nations, all, all, all the nations, every people group, and then he goes, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. So, one of the things that we pride ourselves in here at the Cross Loganville is that we do not a la carte scripture, which means we don't take verses that we like and verses that we don't like and dismiss the ones we don't like and only stand on the ones we like from an exegesis standpoint, biblical term. What we do is we want to handle the, the whole text of the scripture, all scripture, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. So, we take the word all to heart here. So when we comb through the text, we want to know what he says and what it means, and then we want to go live it out. Now, here, here's the thoughts. All authority belongs to Jesus. That's what he says in verse 18. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. All authority. In the Hebrew, it's one of my favorite words, it's the word shmika. Shmika in the Hebrew. And the word shmika in the Hebrew and the word exousia in the New Testament really means that all power, all rule, all dominion, all authority, uh, the ability to do the miraculous and the supernatural, Jesus is saying, it all belongs to me. If you read Philippians 2, 
just a little historical biblical context, he says this, and, and, and God has elevated Jesus and given him a name that's above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord means master and authority. So when Jesus makes the statement to the disciples, hey guys, all authority has been given to me. So you have to ask the question, who's your authority? And you really have to wrestle through the question, who is your ultimate authority? Who's in control of your life? Who calls the shots? Who do you ultimately bow to? Who has the strongest voice in your journey today? Is it Jesus or is it someone else? So when you study scripture, the reality is he's been given all authority. He's been given the authority to forgive sin based on Luke chapter 5. When we study the life of Christ, who can forgive sin but Jesus alone? Remember the story in Mark chapter 2 where they cut the hole in the roof and they let the cat down on the pallet and he looks at him and he says, hey, take up your pallet and walk. And then he says, uh, your sins be forgiven you. And they got all ticked off at Jesus. And they're like, who does he think he is saying that your sins be forgiven you? When he looked at the guy and said, take up your pallet and walk, it cost him his breath. But when he said, your sins be forgiven you, it was going to cost him his life. You see, he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's the ultimate atoning sacrifice. There's none that compare or compete with him. So when Jesus is claiming to have all authority, he's going, who else can forgive sin? The annual sacrifice of Yom Kippur of offering a lamb? No, I am the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world once and for all. And can I tell you something? When I came to faith in Christ in October of 1985, one of the joyful things inside my soul was knowing that my sin was forgiven once and for all. All past, all present, all future. I'm like, I am forgiven. Who has that authority? Only Jesus. Not Muhammad. Not the teachings of Islam. Not the teachings of Hindu. Not Joseph Smith and the Moroni movement of Mormonism. They don't have it. The Pope and his papal authority does not have it. There's only one that at the name of Jesus, he has the authority who's in control. Second thing would be this. I mean, he's able to mediate between you and the Father. That's what he says in 1, Peter, or 1 Timothy 2.5. There's one mediator between God and man. It's the man Christ Jesus, the one who's conquered death out in the grave, who has the keys in his hand. Hey, you have an advocate with a father, a mediator with a father, a lawyer between you and the father. And he lives to make intercession for us. And I'm like, yeah, he, he has all authority. He said, I promise you I'll send the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14. That's, that's what he says. He said, it's to your advantage that I go away because if I go away, I'll send the paracletos, the helper, the, the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he'll be with you. He'll guide you in truth and righteousness. Who else can send the Holy Spirit? When the JWs knock on my door, I ask them that question. Hey, all right, so you say you're, 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 you're followers of God. How do you receive the Holy Spirit? Well, we don't know if you can. Well, the one that I worship told me he was going to send the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit showed up at Pentecost, all these people got ghosted, and now they've got the power of God living inside of them. Who has the authority? 
He says, I've got the authority to open hearts and open the minds of people. He said, I'm the only one that can reveal the Father. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, I give eternal life. John chapter 10, my sheep, they know me and I know them and no one will ever be able to snatch them out of my hand. I've been given all authority. He says, I'll be able to raise you up on the final day. When he shows up in John chapter 11 and tells Lazarus, man, let's go, get up. Who has the authority to raise us up? Oh, death, where is your sting? Who has ultimate authority? Jesus. So the question has to be posed. Then we're going to get into our assignment and go a little practical here. But, But it has to be established that Jesus Christ is ultimate authority. People will oftentimes come and share thoughts with me. And I'm like, what are you basing that thought process on? What has final authority in your life? Jesus Christ is ultimate authority. His word has ultimate authority. So when I go to the word of God, it has ultimate authority in my journey. Not some new special revelation that's in contradiction to what my master has already said. So if I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, I first and foremost have to submit and surrender to the lordship and leadership of Jesus saying, you have all authority, thus you're my authority. Everybody good? Come on. Y'all just kind of hanging in here this morning. Now let's go. So we've established that Jesus has all authority. Now I want us to look at our assignment as we do life. He said, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. So reality is, as I embrace Jesus, not religion, not denominationalism, not some church culture, as I embrace Jesus, I want you to go and make disciples, which implies you've got to be a disciple before you can become a disciple maker. Am I a disciple? Am I hanging out with Yeshua Jesus? Am I meditating and pondering what Messiah Jesus says? Again, the bondage belt of the South, the church bondage belt, you just got to get this, is not about walking aisles and praying prayers and getting in a tank of water. That is unbiblical. There's nothing in Scripture that says if you walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, got in a tank of water, and somebody threw you under the water, that 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 is being a disciple. No, no, no. That's just the first step of embracing Jesus as Messiah. So he says, I want you to go and make disciples. I'm going to break down disciple. But then he says, I want you to baptize them. I want you to teach them all that I have commanded you. Now, what is a disciple? In the Greek, the word is Talmud. Now, remember, when Jesus was growing up, there were three stages of education for the Jewish youth. There was Bet Sefer, house of the book, Bet House of. My little dude, Caleb, had a lacrosse game yesterday. Lacrosse, come on, what are we doing, man? We're a baseball family. He even told Benji the other night, he said, you know why I'm so fired up to play lacrosse? Because dad knows nothing about it. <laughs> stay on. But they were playing at Bethesda Park. And so we were driving. It's like, Bethesda. I said, what does Bethesda mean? Benji goes, house of. I said, house of what? Well, Bethesda means house of mercy. 
That's where Jesus shows up at the pool and, and, and all these people were wounded and knocked down and paralyzed and they were looking for mercy and wasn't finding one, but mercy shows up at the house of mercy and extends mercy. And so Bet, Bethesda means house of mercy, but the educational process for the Jewish kids was Bet Suffer, house of the book. They would study Torah. And then they would go through Bet Midrash, which was that next stage. They would take them all the way through Malachi, but they were studying and, and interacting and engaging with a rabbi. And then only the best of the best would become Talmuds, disciples. They would go through Bet Talmudin. And so once you became a, a, a Talmud, what you would do is you would walk and, and study and hang with the rabbi 24-7. So wherever the rabbi went, you went. And whatever the rabbi ate, you ate. And whatever the rabbi said, you started saying. And so you would, you would walk with rabbi, and that's the phrase, dust of the rabbi. We've kind of hit that. But when the rabbi would walk, the dust coming off of his sandals would blow up on the other ones. And they would you be, would you be covered by his dust? Would you be so close to hanging with your rabbi? So when we talk about it, here's what would happen. They would study it. They would understand uh, what the rabbi was saying, and they would hang with him. Jesus said, go and make disciples. Who's he talking with? He's talking with guys that spent three years of hanging out with Rabbi Jesus. You, you follow it? You guys good? Everybody, everybody connecting with this. And so, uh, they would understand and put into practice what the rabbi was saying. Now, the purest definition of a disciple is one who embraces the teachings and doctrines of another, and he assists in spreading the teachings and doctrines of another. So when a person says, I am a disciple, what they're saying is, I embrace this rabbi's teachings, and I will also go out and help spread his teachings to other people. Go and make disciples. Go and pour into people that will walk in dust of Rabbi Jesus. Not just show up for church and go through the motion, but people that will become Talmuds. And so, they would hang. And when the rabbi thought that the apprentice disciple was ready, that he was showing the spiritual growth and the maturation, he would say, now you go and spread these doctrines and teachings to others. That, that, that is so important when you start to study this. Go into all the world and make disciples. Now, I wrote this out that I think is important. This means that a more mature believer comes alongside a young believer. For me, it was my buddy Walter down in Noonan putting his arm around me as a young believer. And so he got me into the Word, he got me into a worship, and, and said, all right, I'm going to coach you and guide you. So what he modeled, I started doing. All right, we're going to pray, we're going to read, we're going to journal, we're going to study God's Word, because we've been called to embrace His teachings, and in order to embrace His teachings, you got to know what His teachings are. So I'm like, all right, I've got to saturate. So I started unplugging from the less wild lovers. So when you start to disciple, you start to trust, you start to create this bond, and you end up doing life together. And so that's what Jesus is calling us to do. He's calling each and every one of us to have the assignment to go make disciples, which implies I am a disciple and I am following. That's the mission he's calling us all to. That's the reason we push you here, encourage you here, and coach you here to get involved in a small group. 
And whether it's uh, one of the small groups with cross links or whether it's the uh, stronger body or a discipleship group or a marriage group or how, how to handle God's resources better, financial group, whatever it is, when you start to do life on life with other people, because true growth happens in circles, not in rows, you can sit down in a row all you want to, but when you start to do life together, you start to experience deeper growth and maturation. So that's what God is calling us Two, makes sense on what a disciple is. So he says, go into all the world and make disciples, just laid it out, baptizing them. All right, so we baptized about 90-something people here last year. And when you get baptized, it's the first step of obedience of saying, I identify with Jesus Christ as being my Lord and Master. Carol and Billy, we, 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 you guys have been baptized in the last calendar year. And it's so powerful because what you're saying is based on Romans 6, I'm identifying with Jesus to walk a new spirit-filled life controlled by the Holy Spirit full of Christ. Romans 6 says, shall we continue in sin? So that God's grace may abound more freely? God forbid, how can you who died to sin keep living in sin? If we have been buried with Christ through a baptism, we're raised to walk in a new life. So baptism is all about identification saying, I'm going to walk with Jesus Christ. Go baptize them. And so my buddies in the Church of Christ, if you pray and ask Christ to save you at 1130 at night, they'll, they'll run down to the church and baptize you right away. I'm like, man, they get after it right there, brother. I like the way they think. I mean, right? They're not even, they're not even tapping the brakes. It's like, you, you pray to ask Christ, you've got to get baptized, brother. But that's the emphasis. That's the urgency inside of our hearts that I want to get baptized. I want to tell the world that I'm dying to the old self, sin, reckless living, the hell-raising, womanizing, beer-drinking junk of my past. Bam, I got baptized. When I came up, it's like, man, I'm new in Christ. God has given me a new identity, and I want to walk in it. He goes on to say, teach them. Teach them. So we get into the Word together. We do life together. We disciple together. We pour into each other. Rick, that's what we're establishing in our student ministry culture with you and Kara. Across the board, we are training disciples. And then he makes this promise, I'm with you. I'm never going to check out on you. I'm with you until the ends of the age. Now, the practical. Here it is for me. The Great Commission is so important. Jesus tells us in Scripture, and He commands us. He says, here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to reach everyone, everywhere with the gospel. Okay? Who's that assignment for? I, I'm sorry? Oh, it really is. How many people have you reached with the gospel in the last year, last five years, last five weeks? I don't know if I told you, but this was a command Jesus made, not a suggestion. He, he wasn't suggesting to the disciples to do this. Go everywhere to everyone and make disciples. What are you saying? I'm saying every person on the planet should have an opportunity to say yes to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Every person. Here's the reality. It is the heartbeat of Abba's love for all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Who loved? God. What did he do? Ultimately gave his son. 
murdered on a cross, raised from the dead. Go everywhere and tell everyone about my love. Every person that receives and responds to the gospel. Now people say, well, the Bible says all you've got to do is believe. That's right. That's right. But the word believe means be, uh, it means to be persuaded to action. That's right. I'll go with the own belief. But if you're believing, you're persuaded to take action. So what he's saying is every person on the planet should have the opportunity of becoming a disciple by being discipled by someone a little older than them. I wrote this down. Why am I so missional? Why do I think so missional? Again, because of my love for Christ. Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. It's not a suggestion. So when we go to our Jerusalems, Judea, Samarias, the remotest parts of the earth, all we're doing is honoring what our rabbi says do. Go, go, go do it, no matter where you work. Here's another thing. Why do you do it? Why are you so missional? Because Jesus did not stutter. He was very clear. Go everywhere and tell everyone. That's what he said. That's what, that's what he said. So why are you missional? Because people everywhere are lost and they're longing for hope. So I, I was praying this morning. Lord, as I prepare to go downtown, as I prepare to go to the airport, Lord, if there's conversations you would have me be a part of at the gate, please, Father, speak through me. As I get on the plane, praise, praise God, they fly me first class. But would the person in 5B be open to the conversation that we're going to have? Amen. I mean, I might as well ask the Father to show me what he wants. To, I already know what my assignment is. Well, would you help guide and navigate this? You, you go, I'm scared. I know I've been there too. I, I don't know what to say. I've been there too. I don't even know where to start. I've been there too. I get saved in 1985. I don't even know where to start. I don't know how to share my faith. You need to go share your faith. How do you share your faith? I don't know. Well, here's what you do. You talk about who you were before you met Jesus. You talk about how you met Jesus. And then you talk about how Christ is changing you since you've come to meet Jesus. Really. So if you take those three things, write them down, and that's what I did. Hey, write out your testimony. I got a lot of this junk over here before I met Christ. I just met him. Yeah, but how did you meet him? Well, this is how I met him. Okay, then write that down. How is he changing you? Well, he has changed me because I had some jacked up vocabulary and my language was all over the map. And I mean, 12 ounce buds and all this stuff, man, was a part of my life. And, and, and just talk about how he's changing. He's changing your mind. He's changing your language. He's changing where you go. He's changing some of the playgrounds you hang out with. Just write it out. And I did. So I go to spring training in 1986. And I'm like, man, we're getting ready to go play ball. And God goes, share your faith. And people would look at me, Cash, what's up with you? You were raising hell, drinking, going out with us, shutting down bars last year. What happened to you? And I said, I met Jesus. You met who? I met Jesus. I had, a, I had an encounter with Jesus Christ. And I didn't know how to say the book of Job from the book of Job. I was a brand new believer. I stuttered and I stumbled. Stumbled all over places. I knew John 3, 16 and a few other verses. And God said, go share with those people. So we start the season and I'm rolling. I go to double A. Charlie was our pitching coach. We're getting ready to go on an eight-day road trip. His wife comes to me after the game. We're loading up the bus, getting ready to take off. And she says, would you share with Charlie? I said, share what with Charlie? 
She said, Charlie's been telling me that you're a radically changed person from last year. He's like blown away with what's happening in your life. I go to church, Tim. Our girls go to church. We want to follow Jesus. Charlie, he's not locked in. Would you share with Charlie? I said, yeah, I'd share with Charlie. So we get to the hotel in Knoxville, Tennessee, and we're sitting there. Set up a time. Charlie comes over. Charlie, where were you at? I mean, if, if you were to die, where, where do you think you would spend eternity? I don't know. Charlie, do you have any hope in your life? You got any peace in your life? I started sharing with Charlie. Charlie started sobbing his eyes out. I didn't know how to lead anybody to Jesus. I just know, knew how to talk about what Jesus had done in my life. Hey, Charlie, you want to give your life to Jesus, dude? Yes, I don't know how to lead you in a prayer. Why don't you just pray and tell him you want to do it? So Charlie starts weeping. God, I want to know you. I want Jesus to save me. I repent. I'm like, come on. About five years ago, that was 1986. About five years ago, I'm in spring training walking around. Charlie, you still coaching? No way. What's up? And not only am I coaching, but since 1986, brother, I got to tell you, I dove in. I became a disciple of Jesus, Tim. After that conversation in Knoxville, Tennessee, I started loving my wife like Christ loves the church. I started leading my family. Brother, I want to tell you something. See, see, you can count the seeds in an apple, but you can't count the apples in a seed. Anytime you throw a seed, you don't know what God wants to do. And maybe you're over here going, man, I'm, I'm baffled. I don't even know how to share it. I just told you. You ain't, you ain't got to be brilliant with it. But if you've had a Holy Ghost encounter with Jesus where Christ has changed your life and you're starting to, to dive into walking with Jesus, go tell somebody about it. Most of the people don't care about your hermeneutics and homiletics and eschatology studies anyway. They're lost, man. They ain't looking for theology. They're looking for a relationship with Jesus. Let me wrap y'all up. It's doable. It's very doable. I was scared. Scared to death. I get nervous standing in front of people still sometimes. I do. It's like, oh my God, I don't even know if I've studied enough. I don't know if I'm prepared enough. You ever struggle with that? I don't even know if I'm making sense in what I'm saying. I struggle through it. Okay, we're all, we're all in process. So here's what I wrote down. The benefits of becoming a disciple maker. And I got five simple things here I, I want you to, to hear. Okay, when you start walking with Rabbi Jesus and you become a disciple... I'm not joking. And you become a disciple maker where you start mentoring others. Listen to this. You will experience incredible growth as you start to work with someone else. Not only does the person being discipled grow, but you start to grow yourself. You study more, you dig more, you prepare more, and all of a sudden you're going, I can't believe how much I'm growing as a result of pouring into somebody else. Man, that's one of the cool benefits right there. I'm like, no way. You're growing, yes, because God is using this donkey to give divinity a ride to breathe life into somebody else. No way. This dude's getting unlocked, and I'm growing in the process. You better stay with it. Yes. Number two, here's a key thing right here for me. A lot of times, older people feel like, I just don't have a place. I don't know how to get connected. I, I just don't know what God's trying to do in this season of life. Michael Dean is one of my best friends here in the church. We've got a lot of best friends in the church. But Michael Dean's about 71 years old. And Michael Dean and I have talked over the last three or four years, and he said, do you realize that this is like one of the most vibrant, exciting times in my, my whole Christian journey? 
And I said, why? He said, because I'm pouring into other people. You see, when you start hanging out in the church culture a little too long, it's good to get with a new disciple who's a little messy. Yeah, and start to love on them. And when you start to walk with them, older people, can I tell you, your faith will become more vibrant than it's been in years. God is using me as a spiritual mentor to pour into somebody else as a disciple maker. That's happening. Mama Kay, it never gets old. I mean, 80 years old, all beautiful. And God is using her to breathe life on so many other generations. Here's a third one. Oh, and I like this one big time. When you become a disciple maker, here's what it happens. It reduces an unhealthy dependence that other people have on the pastor. It, it, it reduces it. I mean, that, that girl, when she said that a few years back, I'll never forget it. I mean, Barb and I had just got here. It is absolutely essential for me to have a good relationship with my pastor. We've been here five weeks. And I looked and I said, I know you're lonely and hurting. Well, it is essential that I have a good relationship with my pastor. And I said, it's not going to happen. Because it is essential for your pastor to know that his people have a good relationship with their Savior. I don't want you plugging into me. I can't meet your needs. But if we can point you to Jesus, we'll love you. But you're going to have this great relationship? No, we're all ministers in the body of Christ. There's people that you can minister to that no one else can like you can. And there was a couple of girls in the first service. And both of these girls in the last 12 months, their husbands bolted on them. They're hurting. And, and one, one girl went through it first. And then the other girl went through it a few months later. And another one's going through it. And it hurts. Can I tell you something? They're not plugging into me and Barb. The three of them are getting together, loving on each other, plugging into Jesus. They know what it feels like. I don't. I don't live in the estrogen ocean anyway. I don't know what females think. I mean, help a brother out. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that, Tammy. Come on, Sandy. You know it. But you hear me? Hey, it creates. It creates the body working together. Getting that email. Hey, man, I'm hurting this morning. I mean, Barb got a note and she was sharing it with me. And, And people are hurting. Some of you have been ripped off and betrayed and and knocked down. Here's a fourth one. Can I tell you what disciple making does for the local church? It shuts the back door. So many people will walk in a church, hang out maybe six weeks, eight weeks. If they don't get plugged in within that first two to three month window, they walk out the back door. And and it's because that the body of Christ, if we were being the disciple makers that God had called us to, and You still got a responsibility now. We can't force you to get in a small group and get in a growth plan group. But if you start to do that, you don't want to leave. The reason a lot of people leave churches and are not really connected is because they're not being mentored and discipled by anybody. It's hard to leave somewhere where you're loved, where you're valued, where you're appreciated, and where you're experiencing spiritual growth and Christ-centered worship in your life. You start allowing that to happen, you don't want to leave. Here's the fifth thing. Explosive growth can take place for the kingdom when you start to become a disciple maker. Go and make disciples. So, I like math, right? You like math? 
Well, I was in a third of the class that made the upper two-thirds possible, but here, here we go. If you were to go out and reach a hundred people with the gospel every year for 36 years, how many people would you reach? If you were to go out and reach a hundred people a year for 36 years, how many people would you reach? 3,600 people. Not necessarily. If you were to reach three people this year and disciple those three people, and those three people went out and started reaching three people and discipling three people, over 36 years, how many people would be reached? I was doing the math on this the other day. I'm like a million 48,500 people. There's something inside of me that wants to be a part of that movement. Because pastors shepherd and equip the saints to do the work of the service. You see, you can say, well, I reached 100 people this year. How many did you disciple? Didn't disciple anybody. You see, if each and every one of us, three, if we committed to say, I want to reach and disciple three people this year, I'll do it again next year and the next year, but I'm going to train those that I'm discipling and mentoring to do the same. Wouldn't it be crazy? Wouldn't it be crazy that people could look back and go, you, you know that little town outside of a, just outside of Stone Mountain out there, Loganville? They bought into this discipleship thing that Jesus had already commanded them to do. I became the recipient of that movement because then people got serious about being disciples and disciple makers. Wouldn't you love that 36 years from now to know that each and every one of us was doing this and a million people say, hey, it went back to that movement that started there. I'm one of the million plus that came to faith in Christ. You, you see, we live in this entertainment culture. That's what church has become in so many places. And Jesus, his final instruction, his final word to the church, all authority has been given. I want you now to go into all the world and all the nations, and I want you to be about making disciples. So that's what I'm praying. Wheels up. Let's roll. Going out there and hanging out in Arizona. Player was killed about three weeks ago. A lot of people are hurting, struggling, trying to find answers, dealing with the question of death. Front office, managers, coaches, all these people. Where is, I don't know where God's sending you this week. That's where he's sending me this week. But go and make disciples. If you ever embrace that, it will become the habitual lifestyle of who you are, and you'll never regret it. I can tell you 32 years into the journey, being able to say, I am a disciple and a disciple maker is one of the key things about who I am. I want to encourage you. You can do it. You can have this type of spiritual growth where you walk in the sayings and the yoke of Rabbi Jesus and you become a change agent for the kingdom. I pray that today's word encouraged you. And thanks for joining us uh, on this uh, broadcast today. If we can help you in your walk with Christ in any way, feel free to contact us here at the Cross Loganville. Our email, info at thecrossloganville.org, or you can call us 770-554-3322. God bless you. 
And I pray that you have just an incredible day.